Welcome. I'm Warren Odess Gillette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Lisa Hesa-Smith on June 7, 2022. Lisa is a musical composer, performer, teacher, and film scorer. In 2001, she put together her earliest piano compositions and has since produced four other CDs. When I asked Lisa to select six musical pieces to feature on the interview, she did something that I had no other musical artist do. She selected pieces that were created by others that she found as an influence in her musical career. And she only selected two pieces that she composed, Brocaded Tent and Light Revealed, which we feature at the end of the interview. I started the interview by asking Lisa where she grew up and what was religious life like growing up. I grew up in South Africa back in the 50s, 60s. It was such a time of turmoil, you know, just from a political point of view. So it was always very present in in the house growing up, not that my parents were political. It was always the topic and there were always things happening and there was always this sense of drama, really, about what was going on and what would become, how that was all put together. But in contrast to that, there were many other things too. Growing up, there wasn't really a religion as such. I think the first time I... I put set foot in a church or, or a holy building, if you like, was probably when I was about, oh, I don't know, 16, 17. And that was only because I was going with a friend and she'd left something inside the actual main church. And so she said, oh, just come in. I've just left this here. Come in with me. And then I was inside this church and was like, oh, my, I'm inside a church. You know, it was like an occasion you know, <laughs> to, to remember my parents read widely, you know, they had varying kind of wide-ranging philosophies, I suppose. I mean, I remember we had a book on the bookshelf, which was the Aquarian Gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, that was like, oh, it's like a book that shouldn't be here, you know, but, you know, wow, it's okay, you can read it here, it's all right. And so they were like different books. I mean, my mother would like subscribe to Rosicrucian Digest, you know, something similar along those lines. They were sort of into looking at, you know, different healing forms, you know, vibration, color healing. So these were all the, the sort of pathways. They weren't churchgoers. They didn't particularly look to any particular way of religious life. So, um, so that was interesting. I mean, my father was in law. He, in fact, was a barrister. My mother was an artist, really, and she exhibited. And so it was quite a contrast, the two personalities growing up. I then indicated, you know, when I was in my probably about 15 or something, I remember 15, 16, because this is tied up with that being the first time in the church. I had a friend and she was going to go to confirmation classes. This was Methodist. And I said, oh, I'll come along. It just sounded interesting. And I remember thinking, well, maybe this is something to look into. And then and then going to class. And in fact, I think I might even have been confirmed. I mean, it was all a bit hazy, but I vaguely remember that. But it soon became very apparent to me, and that was so it was very early in the piece, that somehow there was a huge and vast discrepancy between what was being put forward in these classes and the reality of the world I lived in and the world that seemed to be 
what most of my friends were living in. So, yeah, so there was already that quandary. I was already in that questioning uh, mode. Uh, father, he he fought in the Second World War in Italy at the time for one of the South African was serving in the in the armed forces, and apparently when the with the war when they were coming back back home they actually the ship actually docked in Haifa. The Haifa is significant for Baha'is because it is there that the, the Baha'i World Center is situated, and I always found it interesting that that in fact my father was right there and it took me many years to get there and find my way there on my spiritual journey. Lisa, speaking of your spiritual journey, describe for us what that spiritual journey was that led you to the Baha'i faith and becoming a Baha'i. Of course, it spans over many years and working through having family and so on and so on. You know, people often would ask me, why did you leave South Africa? So it was a mixture of things. I wasn't a particularly political creature myself. The ever-present danger of just the volatile environment. I would think about that and it would be, no, I couldn't say it was political. Certainly very much driven by adventure and travel. And, you know, just that whole curiosity of new people, change. And a good friend of mine had already migrated to Australia. He was living in Sydney and he was very, you know, encouraging of coming over. And so it was at that time that my family and I basically, we, myself and my husband, we travelled over. And, 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 yeah, that's basically where my son was born and, and later my daughter. And even from that point onward, there was a lot more travel. So it was, it was a step in that direction. And then, you know, just over time, as I was saying, doesn't it's not something that just happens. You know, caught up in that whole moving and migrating and a young family. It's just through a whole series of circumstances, um, day-to-day life. Myself and family, we landed, young family, landed up in a particular neighbourhood you know, we started to chat to the neighbours across the fence. We found out that they were from America, from the US, and that in fact they had also just recently migrated to Australia and that the neighbour had recently retired from the Navy and they were looking for a new life for him and his family, starting a new business and so on. And this was in the city of Canberra. And so it was chatting to them and over the, oh, several years actually, I was really intrigued because... They also had just arrived and we had just arrived and just finding our feet, finding our neighbourhood. They just seemed to always have people coming over. It was most intriguing. I was just intrigued by this and curious. They would invite us to various things and, and I just found the people that would come to these various gatherings. I wasn't, it's not that I didn't pay attention to what they were. I was mindful that they would belong to some kind of community, but I wasn't sure. And I couldn't tell because in South Africa, I had many Jewish friends. And so I kind of understood that. And, you know, very it's in South Africa, there are Muslims, although with the apartheid, of course, laws, it's not like you can mix freely with, with everybody. But, you know, one's mindful that there are various religions and, and so on. And so I was curious who these people were. And I remember looking up at this, symbol and I'm thinking no they're not Jewish they can't be Jewish that's not a Jewish symbol but you know this is pre-Google you know I remember at that time I was working part-time assisting at the Canberra Symphony Orchestra office and so I would get like all the scores ready for my musicians you know for a concert 
And I was asking my boss at the time, uh, Maeve, and I said, you know, who are these people? They're, it's, it's like behind. Like, she said, I'll find out, talk to, you know, she's going to talk to her family and friends because they, you know, they kind of moved in university circles and surely they would know. But they didn't, never heard of it, just never heard of it. But life moves on. And eventually we sold up there and, and we we're going to move to the West Coast. And the reason being, it was just closer to visiting parents, my parents in South Africa. It was closer to Europe for traveling. And so we moved. We had a wonderful four years and, and, and developing the friendship and the bonds with these people who were so varied and so interesting. They were all walks of life, backgrounds. Yes, it, was just, it fascinated me. I couldn't quite pin it for some reason. But I did notice they would come and visit and that we would talk away. And coming from South Africa, there's always this heavy political thing. I noticed that whenever I'd talk any, even a hint of politics, they would just somehow, the conversation would just veer away. Not that one spoke badly of neighbours, but if one said something that I realised now would probably be backbiting in the sense that you'd be saying something a little mean <laughs> about a neighbour, they would also kind of just move it along or swing it around or whatever. But I did notice that it became apparent to me that these were two sort of topics that they, <laughs> they didn't explore. <laughs> and then coming to Perth in Western Australia, just after a few weeks I was missing all the wonderful friends from the high community rang up a few numbers because there were some phone numbers that they'd given us to contact Baha'is there. A couple of them, they, they were like, oh, I couldn't get through or whatever, and then one had an open house. But then I spoke to somebody, and um, she said, you're from South Africa. And I said, he is. And she said, no, her and her husband were from South Africa. They, She said they were Jewish. They had been Jewish, but they had, had become Baha'is as part of their journey. And I was fascinated by that. I kind of thought, oh. And she said, oh. We've got a video about some South African story, and I'm sure you would enjoy it. Why don't you come over and join us? And that's kind of how it all started. That's kind of really started to focus more specifically on that. And the upshot of all of that was, you know, visiting and backwards and forth. The distances were quite big. At that time, it was a big distance. Now, with the freeways connecting, it's not that bad. But then it was, you know, it was a good 50 miles to, to get from one end where we were to them. But, you know, it was just a real kind of, a, I wouldn't say a highlight, highlight, but it certainly was very enjoyable meeting up and, and just generally talking about all sorts of things. Uh, but then I remember I, I decided, okay, this is it. Now I'm going to ask the question because I would ask people, so what is the Baha'i No one could actually, I was never given any pamphlets. I was never given really any, any information. I mean, maybe if I was really, really curious, I probably could have gone to the library, but it wasn't something that I thought thought about. And so I said, okay, I sat, sat down and I said, okay, Rose, I said, now tell me, what is the Baha'i faith about? And so she turned around, I always remember this, Warren. She turned around and she took out from behind her sofa, she took out this big cardboard and she had written down all the these principles. And I very quickly just read these principles and I, and I said, those are things I believe in. You want to tell me that there is a religion like this? Yeah, I was just dumbfounded. <laughs> she said yeah and so that kind of led into actually reading the writings because up until that point I hadn't I may I may have heard prayer probably you know did hear prayers and things like that but um I never really heard any of the prayers or the writings of Baha'u'llah or Abdu Baha or the Bab. those yes. are central figures of the Baha'i faith 
these are all central figures of the Baha'i faith. And of course, that's, you know, another aspect to it all to look at as well. So that, as I say, covers many years to getting to that point of understanding. And then finally, one night, was calling them up and saying, you know, we'd like to be Baha'i. How does one become a Baha'i? And then they came over, they were very excited and explained um, an understanding and having an understanding of who Baha'u'llah is, you know, who is this manifestation of the day. And how long ago was that, Lisa? Well, I have to say that that must be some 30 plus years. It's coming to a point now where, you know, I look back and I think, it's amazing how, how that thread just wove itself through the years, over the years, regardless, through the highs and the lows. It just kept pushing to this point and quite extraordinary, you know, and how long that understanding come and that sudden reveal of what this, you know, incredible faith is about, you know, and, and the majesty and the beauty of of the vision, uh, Baha'u'llah's vision for, for humanity. So going back to your growing up years, what was musical life like growing up? Well, um, we were encouraged, as, you know, in our home, as, as in most homes, really, at the time, you know, certainly not everyone in South Africa, of course, you come to understand later, but but certainly we were, we were privileged and had the bounty of uh, good education, and that included having some ballet lessons, piano was pretty much the instrument, you know, it wasn't really looking suddenly at a violin or something. It wasn't in particular. There was a, a little bit of music tradition in the family in that my father, in fact, had played the piano to the level of teaching. My mum, she loved to sing mostly operas, which is which is why um, that was sort of a little bit of a backdrop there. But it's not that she sang in Italian or anything like that, but she just sort of hummed along and she would just, love to you know sweep into rooms and sing a bit like that also i was always very drawn to there was a program on the radio in those years by then i would be up a primary school but it was on a saturday night we never had television in south africa it was never available and was i never grew up with tv and when south africa did get tv it was color there was like i think maybe like two channels you know bilingual channels at that stage but it was radio. Everything was pretty much radio. And listening to the radio was this program on a Saturday. It was um, listeners would send in their choices. It was called Ayakiasa, which means your own choice. And I loved this program. It was for an hour. I think it was in the evening. And I I would just be entranced by the music that people were. I mean, it was everything from, I don't know, Fritz Kreisler to opera singing to piano pieces. It was not heavy classical, but pretty much a classical program. And it was one of those radios that was like an old-fashioned type where it was sort of like a you know, piece of cabinetry, so it was like on legs. And I would literally crawl, Warren, underneath the radio mm-hmm. so that I could hear every single sound because I actually was born hearing only in one ear. And so I would like get my hearing ear right into that radiogram <laughs> <laughs> so that I could hear everything. And I can remember vaguely one once my mother got sat talking to my dad and going, you know, has she got a problem? <laughs> Why is she? <laughs> I remember my dad, he was always very supportive of the music. He was very supportive of education in general, actually. He would go, No, just leave her alone. She's she's you know, she's not bothering anybody. <laughs> 
Anyway, and that's, so that was like that. And also because of my dad's work, he would get a lot of tickets for really world-class performers coming to Johannesburg or Cape Town. It was everything from the Bolshoi Ballet. It was, you know, I can remember Natalia Makarova, you know, just entranced with this dancing and opera singing. And I do remember Vladimir Ashkenazi playing big operatic dramas, the colour. Sometimes I'd go with my mum. And I realised now, I used to think my dad might not have wanted to go. But sometimes I wonder, because my family, my siblings, I had three other siblings, maybe just because I was the one that was so interested in the music that my dad just sort of, I just took his ticket. And then much later, of course, you know, he'd give me just the two tickets if I wanted to take a friend. And then just doing piano exams, singing in school, getting a bus and travel to other places and sing, you know, in, the, in those efforts. There was a strong thread of music for sure growing yeah. up. So I'm speaking with Lisa Hesa-Smith, musical composer, performer, teacher, film scorer, and in 2001, she put together her earliest piano composition and, and has since produced four other CDs. Lisa, you selected a number of pieces for us to feature on this interview. Mm-hmm. And the first piece is by Franz Liszt. Can you tell us the title of this piece? Yes, it's very specific. This particular piece was quite the turning point for me because it's called Un Suspiro. It's in D-flat major, so it's not an easy piece to play, that's for sure. I then later came to understand. But it's one of three etudes for concert and very um, almost virtuosic, very lyrical, very dramatic and expressive. But I first heard this piece because I would take piano lessons at primary school. It was either in a break or after school. It was sort of that, that was the way the school offered these classes. And my music teacher, I still remember her name, Miss Mostard. I came walking down the corridor to get to my class and I heard this piece of music and I was absolutely entranced. I just I just stood at the door and listened to her playing this piece. And I didn't want to interrupt or anything. She was, you know, I was over time already, but she was obviously practicing or something. And then finally she finished and then I sort of came in and that piece was just something that I thought was incredible. Never heard anything like it. And I asked her what the name was, and I determined at that point that one day I would play that piece myself because it was just so beautiful for me. And in fact, I did. I did eventually get to play that. So that piece was the sort of the beginning that just to try and somehow capture that wonderful sound of movement and expression. I selected this particular piece composed by Franz Liszt, performed by Lang Lang. He's such a beautiful performer of music.
I'm speaking with Lisa Hesa Smith, who's a musical composer, performer, teacher, and film scorer. And she selected a piece from Franz Liszt that was really fundamental to her really loving music. And Lisa, the next piece that you selected is Chopin's Winter Wind. Now, why did you select this piece? Because it's my understanding you did not perform this piece either. I think it was my eighth or my ninth birthday because I'd already started taking piano lessons. And my auntie, she'd organized a special little lunch and she always treated me, you know, so caringly and lovingly. And she had organized a lunch and the family was there and, and I was opening my presents. And here was this vinyl, really. The Vladimir Ashkenazi playing Chopin, a whole album. And I remember it was just, for me, it was just a wonderful day. I'd never heard Chopin specifically. I hadn't, you know, I may have heard heard the music before, but, but in this context, I hadn't heard it. And she, the music was playing and the family were, were chatting away and, and we were all having this delicious lunch. And to me, it was just like one of those magical moments that you remember many, many years later. And somehow that music... I think it's just such an expressive and evocative landscape, you know, in, in my growing up and sort of in my kind of imaginative world of, you know, how you see things and what inspires you. It was so, music is so, I suppose, delicate, elegant. And then this this particular piece is just contrasting, you know, the, you know, it's so dramatic, it was so reflective of life, you know, for me, you know, it just was a perfect soundscape if you like where I could populate with my thoughts and my questioning or not all those sorts of things and moods and so on so the Chopin was always wonderful and whenever I was getting ready to play for a piano exam I would always look to see if the syllabus would include something with Chopin or related to something it was always that those melodies those those shifting harmonies I suppose and it was just those beautiful melody line that would just weave its way through all the time and be shaded in some way. It was almost like almost like a watercolour. It would just have all this um, evocative, textured, rich textured kind of sound for me. So the Chopin was very much, and still is, you know, still my sort of go-to pieces to play. And who performed this piece? This is Vladimir Ashkenazi. I had heard him play in South Africa, 
And then subsequently at the Sydney Opry House, there was a concert. And I remember we, there wasn't much, much money in the budget, but I remember we kind of like scraped together and we decided that, okay, that's it. There's enough there for one ticket. Off you go and listen to Vladimir Ashkenazi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he just has a definitely, is, is such a, an incredibly inspired performer, <laughs> a wonderful musical person.
I'm speaking with Lisa Hesa-Smith, a musical composer, performer, teacher, and film scorer. We had just listened to a Chopin piece called Winter Wind, performed by Vladimir Ashkenazi. The next piece we're going to listen to is from the film Room with a View. So Lisa, why did you select this piece to be played for the interview? It's not actually about the movie. (laughs) The way that music could be used in a film to evoke a certain sense of whatever the director wants to achieve. But it's also because of the the versatility of an Italian opera and also the beauty, and Puccini in particular, writing such beautiful lines and such soaring melodies. Again, you know, capturing the drama, the beauty, the pathos, just the diverse expressions of feeling of of our humanity of our sense of wonderment somehow in my mind I just thought that music has moved on how that music has not only performed as an opera but also is in accompaniment and a very worthy accompaniment of a film I'm speaking with Lisa Hesa-Smith, a musical composer, performer, teacher, and film scorer, and we've been listening to music that's been important to her in her own journey as a musician and performer. And we just listened to an operatic aria by Pacini that is featured in the movie Room with a View. Now, tell us about the next piece, which is titled Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Is this from the film by the same name? Yes, indeed. This is um, from the film. It's a score written by two composers, actually. It's the uh, Argentinian composer, uh, George Calendrelli, 
and then Tan Dun, who is originally from China. So there's a real east-west mix there of composers bringing their talents and creativity to the story of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And back in, I think it was 2001, uh, when this film came out, I was just amazed at the diverse instruments, you know, had all these different sounds that, that I wasn't used to hearing. And, and it, it really sort of fired up my imagination. It was just so beautiful and exotic. The amazing palette that could be used to create that fantastical story.
I'm speaking with Lisa Hesa-Smith, a musical performer, composer, teacher, and film scorer. And we've been listening to music that has been instrumental in her love of music and pieces of music that really inspire her. And we just listened to a soundtrack segment from the movie Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Now the next piece you selected is Brocaded Tent. So tell us about this piece. This piece is a piece that I composed that played the piano part. It was recorded actually in Chicago at the Tone Zone and Catherine Hughes is on the violin. In many ways, I wouldn't say culmination, but certainly a particular point in this long journey of spiritual journey. It's a point along a musical journey, life's journey. It's just just everything somehow gets expressed through the music, I suppose. But this particular piece, The Brocaded Tent, is part of an album called Wondrous. And I put together and composed some music very specifically to commemorate the bicentenary of the birth of Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith. So all the compositions are inspired by the writings and life of Baha'u'llah. And so at the time when I was composing music and looking for the inspiration, I would look at the life, how I would imagine the life at that time for Baha'u'llah, where he was in the Holy Land. His journey of coming from Persia. So I somehow wanted to capture something of that. So the piece is part of this album, Wondrous, which in fact uh, was inspired by me reading the Tablet of the Maiden to somehow capture some of that incredible beauty and majesty and just something quite beyond our human understanding to put that into sound. One of the titles from this from the album is called Remembering the Mountains of Mazaran or Dapple Gardens or Joyous Welcome is with when Baha'u'llah would be waiting for his son Abdu'l-Baha'u to come and visit him and how excited he would be while he was waiting for him to come to visit. So this whole album is centered around the life and writings of Baha'u'llah. Roses and Sweet Tea, I was thinking of the Garden of Rizwan, when people would come and listen to Baha'u'llah. More specifically, this one, I was inspired actually just by a picture that was being posted online on the Baha'i World Center on the special website for the Bicentenary, celebrating uh, all the events around the world at that time, which was back in 2017. They had brought out one of the tents that was used by Baha'u'llah. They had put it on display on the grounds at Baji for pilgrims and visitors. So they, they had these beautiful tents. And what, what fascinated me just was the detail, was this brocaded inside, just the, the richness of all of the tent. I mean, you know, we we do tents now, but nothing like this. This was just wonderful. And what a beautiful canopy for the words of Baha'u'llah to somehow just rise up and inspire hearts. These tents were actually were provided to Baha'u'llah that were from the Baha'is in India. And so, of course, it has this Indian beautiful sense of color and, and design. So that inspired that piece. It was almost playful in the sense that at happy occasions. So I wanted to somehow impart that sense to the listener. Thank you. 
I'm speaking with Lisa Hesa Smith, a musical composer, performer, teacher, and film scorer. And we had just listened to a piece that she performs on her CD called Wondrous, and it's called Brocaded Tent. The next piece we're going to feature is called Light Revealed. So tell us about this piece. Well, this piece came about as part of providing some scoring music for Perry Productions, who were doing a special uh, film called Abdu'l-Bahá in America, 1912. So they were following his journey in parallel to historical events taking place in America at the time, a wonderful production. And it certainly was a great bounty for me to be able to contribute some music to that production. They were just kind of short on a particular type of piece, a particular sound. I wanted to write something that would somehow capture that particular portion of that story being told about Abdu'l-Bahá visiting America. That came about, it is a piano and cello and was recorded in Los Angeles. And it was also for me particularly interesting because it was the first time that somebody else was playing my music, was playing the piano part. I had anticipated being there to actually be at the recording, but circumstances didn't pan out that way. In fact, it worked out for the best because the pianist, a studio pianist, he didn't give that much emphasis to the piano, whereas the cello really dominates this particular duet, which is wonderful because it's such a beautiful performance by the cellist. And I sometimes think if I'd been playing that piano part, I probably would have overworked it mm-hmm. <laughs> because I'm a pianist. It was this wonderful sense of I've written something and somebody's playing it and they're playing it because they understand it and they somehow are they are playing it. I mean, it sounds a bit odd to keep referring to the fact that somebody else is playing something you wrote, but if you're a poet and you write something and somebody recites your poem, I'm not sure if it's the same sense of wonderment, but it certainly mm-hmm. was. It's like an interpretation of what you composed. Yeah, that's right. I know. And it was like, wow, it's amazing. But, you know, So in fact, I'm thinking that if I record something, I'm looking at next year doing something, and I'm thinking, I don't even have to play. <laughs> I'm not really a stage performer. <laughs> mm. I can barely manage the studio. But I do, write, <laughs> I, do love, I do love to write the music. Also, I just wanted to highlight this particular aspect of the title. But all the titles of the music have always uh, somehow inherent in the title. I've tried to relate directly to the writings of Baha'u'llah, to the events in the life of the central figures. So in all my work that's been inspired by the faith and the writings, it would be, the title would be like the orange tree, because the metaphor is used throughout the writings, or it could be under the shade of the mulberry tree, or the after Tabriz. All of these have some inherent connection to that event or a circle of cypress trees they all somehow connect in there so this one light revealed it has that connection and then I was asked if I would like to submit something by the UCLA Music Library which is an open access collaboration project that they were undertaking back in 2020 a couple of years ago and they were calling for scores and so I submitted my score for this kaleidoscope 2020 call for scores so it's open access and so it's there if anyone wants to play it 
the music is there for the piano and the cello. That's something that I need to do. All my music is in proper music form. So maybe one day I can somehow get the makers available for anyone who'd like to actually play the music. I'm speaking with Lisa Hesa-Smith, a musical composer, performer, teacher, and film scorer. We had just listened to a piece that she composed called Light Revealed. I keep saying in the introduction, you're a musical composer, performer, teacher, and film scorer. So do you teach music? Currently, I'm not teaching music, Warren, but I have obviously in the past had students, mainly at a studio at my residence. I've enjoyed that immensely. It's been something that we're looking at again. Never a large amount of pupils or anything, but it's very rewarding. The teaching is wonderful. I have to be honest, this is something that's just hovering there for me to review and re-look at and revisit. And in fact, it was not only my love for music and wanting to somehow share that with children or even with, I've had some adult pupils as well. Yes, I would look to do teaching again, perhaps. Lisa, where can people find your music? I have music sitting on the Nine Star Media, which is the number nine 
Star Media, which is uh, it's a wonderful link to a whole range of behind-spied music. And, of course, there's CD Baby and iTunes and so on. It's all the usual kinds of streaming. Something that I have to look at again, make sure that music is all available. But certainly Nine Star Media and CD Baby are places to go. If people go to your website, which is lisahasasmith.com, mm. what will they find when they land on your website? It's, I mean, it's a very simple website. If you go there, you'll see there's my name and lots of flowers. You'll always find so many flowers wherever you go. There's some early compositions that people can listen to if they want to. The CD album, Wondrous, mm-hmm. to celebrate and honor the bicentennial of the birth of Baha'u'llah. And Purchase, I've got available on Nine Star Media and CD Baby. I never set out to do CDs. I mean, I never actually thought, oh, I'm going to start putting CDs together. No, it was never that. It was just a platform to get to writing music for film. At my first one, The Garden of Sweet Fragrance, I was actually waiting to get a permanent residency for the U.S. I was studying at UCLA and all of that kind of stuff. I'd always written various pieces of music, and I had written music for like a New Zealand documentary, Giving It All Away. I wrote music for that, which was a wonderful DVD, Sir Roy Mackenzie and his life story. It was produced and written by a a New Zealand Paul Davidson. But there's lots of things before all the CDs. The CDs to submit so that they could hear your music, so that you could write the music for the film. I never produced them per se, but then that first one, while I was waiting for this visa and I couldn't leave the country, so I thought, okay, well, I'll just start writing music for somebody's birthday or I'd write it for somebody getting married and people that I knew. I wrote one for my daughter, one for my son. You know, I just kind of wrote music and then later on had them recorded and then they just became the portfolio, if you like, the musical portfolio, so that I could submit that for people. And I would, I would write to all kinds of projects. I haven't done too much of that more recently. All of this is not just through one's own efforts. It's been, as I said, I think on my website, through the efforts of everybody, you know, support of family, support of people along the way. These are award-winning producers who suddenly become available, you know, that kind of thing. And then just the bounty of being able to attend film scoring classes at UCLA. Not that any of this didn't come with a price. All of these things come with a price and some kind of sacrifice. But there you are. That's how a life evolves. And always with a view to uplift and to bring joy to hearts. I think that's probably what underpins it all. I want to thank you, Lisa, so much for sharing the music that inspired you to become a musician and a film scorer and the pieces that you actually did compose. I want to thank you so much for sharing your work. Thank you. Oh, it's been my absolute joy. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Lisa Hesa-Smith, musical composer, performer, teacher, and film scorer. You can visit her website at lisahesasmith.com. Hesa is spelled H-A-E-S-E. LisaHasaSmith.com. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel Abahai Perspective. You can find the podcast on Spotify and iTunes. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website Baha'i.org or call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Mm-hmm.